Welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Um, my recent episode on museums mm-hmm. uh, was so incredibly popular. <laughs> uh I couldn't walk outside of your house. Oh, my goodness. There were photographers. Is paparazzi still around? Yeah, I think so. Especially in the UK. I mean, poor Meghan Markle. Uh, But... (laughs) (laughs) And New York. And Los Angeles. Okay. Um, So, yeah. uh, Not in Rochester, New York, sadly. (laughs) Or not sadly. (laughs) But uh, I did want to... I'm going to take you all to school again. I've decided. So, today is going to be Muse 102... Science and Tech Museums. So, we can have a dialogue again. This is exciting. I love talking about museums with my museum friends, and I hope you guys like it too. But first of all, I wanted to... I neglected to mention something in my last museum episode with regards to conservators. And this is very important for trivia purposes. Okay. One of the best solvents for gently cleaning the surface of paintings is human saliva. And that sounds gross and weird, but in fact, any conservator that you talk to is like, oh yeah, absolutely. Just spit on that thing. Just Well, not spit on it, but I actually, I got a chance to do that at work the other you day. You got to spit on something? I got to spit on some paintings. So um, <laughs> we were cleaning some um, oil on board, me and my coworker, Carol. Hi, Carol. She doesn't listen to this podcast. And uh, she gave me a bunch of thin sticks and uh, a bunch of loose cotton. And she taught me to grab a piece of cotton and roll it up and stick it in my cheek and let it sit there and then pull it out, roll it around the stick and then gently like buff the surface of the paint. She was hazing you. <laughs> she did the same thing. We were both both like cotton in our cheeks, like <laughs> like the Godfather and cleaning the surface of paintings and it is it's an excellent solvent because it has a gentle um enzymes like, enzyme mm-hmm. that breaks down the surface of dirt but doesn't harm um the the image the image or the varnish that's mm-hmm. the word i'm looking for and this is why people don't want you to get up close and personal with paintings in no. art museums because it's co- they're covered in spit <laughs> They're covered in human spit, you guys. I was thinking they don't want you to spit on them. Oh, no. Please don't spit on them because it will break it down eventually. Um, Also, zoos are museums. Yes. 100%. 100% zoos are museums. They have a collections process. They collect animals. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have a loan process. They loan animals to other museums for a certain amount of time. There's paperwork involved. They have a deaccession process. Mm -hmm. It's more gruesome than than a normal museum process. Sure. But it's, they deaccession. There's paperwork involved when an animal shuffles off this mortal coil. So yeah. I wanted to give a shout out to my cousin, the zoo. Not my your cousin. cousin. <laughs> my work cousin, the zoo. So Steve's brother is Steve's? the internet and your cousin is the zoo. <laughs> Steve's. Yeah. Steve's brother's the internet. My cousin's the zoo. It's just facts. Okay. <laughs> we, we, we have a friend and listener. Yes. James. Who is a zookeeper. Yes. Hello, James. Hello, James. Uh, and we have decided that we're just going to go to the zoo with a microphone yes. and have him talk to us. I think it's a good idea. And I think he would be down for it. He's been like really, I mean, I feel terrible because we have been in touch with him and we just have not gotten a chance to like hook up and mm-hmm. actually do an episode. But he's a great guy. He has very interesting work. He's funny and interesting. And we're definitely going to do an episode soon. And that's, I think we definitely should go to the zoo with a microphone. <laughs> Do like real NPR shit. Misinformation you know? goes to the zoo. I love that. Okay, that's it. Misinformation goes to the zoo. Get ready, James. We're coming for you. All right. Museum terminology time. Okay. All of these terms are from my award-winning PowerPoint presentation entitled <laughs> Life is Short and Then You Die, Physical Deterioration and How to Prevent It. It is not award-winning. It's just one of my PowerPoints from class. But, okay. First term, inherent vice which was my team name for trivia in grad school. And yes, we won a lot. Um, Inherent vice is the tendency in physical objects to deteriorate because of the fundamental instability of the components of which they are made, as opposed to deterioration caused by external forces. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It basically means 
uh, that the makeup of the object is slowly destroying it from the inside and there's nothing you can do about it. A good example of this is newspapers. The process by which the paper is made is very acidic, which causes the paper to yellow and crumble eventually, which is not reversible by any conservation mean. All objects have some kind of inherent vice as a result of the baseline law of entropy, of course, but we're not going to get really philosophical about this um, because that's just looking into an abyss that we just don't have time for today. Uh, My students Uh in uh, my intro to archives course get a whole week of me just telling them how terrible everything is. Oh, yeah. Light is bad. Mm -hmm. Water is bad. Air is bad. Heat is bad. Touching things is bad. Like, just don't. Yeah, just don't. That's the, that's basically it. Yeah. This is what this is. Your stuff is going to die. Yep. Life is short and then you die. That's why I called it that. My students laugh, but it's true. Uh, The next term is foxing. You must be familiar with this. It is an age-related process of deterioration that causes spots and browning on old paper documents. The name may derive from the fox-like reddish-brown color of the stains or the rust chemical ferric oxide, which may be involved. Paper so affected is said to be foxed. You see this a lot with like book bindings. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, foxing also occurs in biological study skins or specimens as an effect of chemical reactions or mold on melanin. Mm-hmm. Um, the causes of foxing aren't super understood. It might be mold or the oxidation of metals and like iron or copper in the pulp or rag from which the paper is made, but no one is entirely sure. It is reversible, but it is kind of an intensive process. So a lot of times if the paper is already in- unstable, Foxing isn't that big of a deal. Um, and so a lot of conservators will just leave it mm-hmm. unless it's like super bad and you can't like actually read you the paper or whatever. It. Yeah. Um, the next word is chrysling. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, chrysling is a distinctive network of fine cracks in glass, which is visible to the naked eye. Um, it's one of the symptoms of glass disease, AKA sick glass or glass illness. Glass Not bird bones. Yep, like bird bones. Glass disease is caused by an inherent instability in the chemical composition of the original glass formula. Um, it is irreversible, but able to be slowed down by tight climate control, which we will talk about in a moment. And and Lauren did a really great episode, Heart of Glass. Yes, I did an episode on Maybe glass. Maybe episode 20 or so. Ooh. Somewhere back there in yeah, the, in the back catalog. Early enough, first and, year. And also, if you like glass, may I plug... Um, the series Blown Away on Netflix, which is like oh, a yeah. competition show about like glass blowing. Very fascinating stuff. Yeah. Glass is amazing. Like if you're local to New York State, I highly recommend the Corning Museum of Glass, which uh, talks about the science, the history, the art, and like another thing of glass. It's just all about glass. Um, and it's a big, beautiful museum. They've got a great uh, gift shop. Oh, their gift shop's fantastic. And they do hot glass shows where they actually like make glass in front of you and talk about the process. And it's really cool. Um, so highly recommend go to the Corning Museum of Glass. The next term is called cockling. Cockling is a planar distortion of paper, parchment, or textile. It appears as wrinkles, puckers, or ripples, often in parallel ridges without creases, uh, like buckling, but appears in waves. Um, so cockling just kind of looks like like a rumpled sheet, basically, like on your bed. Um, also, just as an FYI, words like weeping, oozing, desiccation or drying out, off-gassing, the evaporation of potentially dangerous chemicals into the air, or friable, which is easily broken apart or flaking, tends to be words used in other fields as well, but all have to do with how an object is damaged or breaking down. The just going back a second um the like this cockling of paper happens because um paper if it absorbs water and then mm-hmm. lets the water out so this is why you don't want your humidity and your temperature oh, to I'll, fluctuate oh i'll talk yeah, about yeah, it yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. that's but that's a big thing that'll happen mm-hmm. that you can like that's clearly visible that you know something's wrong if yes. your paper starts doing that. yeah it's a, a very obvious symptom of that Also, a couple of uh, words that are not necessarily damage, um, but definitely are um, weaknesses in the object. So this term, crechlore. Crechlore is a fine pattern of dense cracking formed on the surface of materials. You usually see it in oil paintings. It can be a result of drying, aging, intentional patterning, or a combination of all three. And the term is most often used to refer to tempera or oil paintings, but it can also develop in old ivory carvings or painted miniatures on an ivory backing. Recently, analysis of crack lore has been proposed as a way to authenticate art. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's just the way that um, paint is layered 
uh, in the process of actually painting the piece of artwork. Sometimes certain layers uh, dry faster than others, or there is an off-gassing process during the drying process, and it um, damages the surface level, and so it actually shrinks or expands mm-hmm. depending and causes these fine cracks, um, which is interesting. Uh, Cracklore in uh, pottery is called crazing, um, and that it's similar in that its fine cracks appear on the surface of the material, most often in the glazed layer of pottery or ceramics. And it's that very again, beautiful. It is beautiful. And sometimes, and especially like both crackler and crazing, one could argue is desirable in certain mm-hmm. cases. Like when you see crackler in a painting, you know, it's old, you yes. know, it's an antique. It, it lends a air of like authenticity to it. Crazing and pottery is seen as like a textural benefit. Mm-hmm. It does make the piece weaker to a certain extent. You're not supposed to like put, you're not supposed to like wash or soak pieces of pottery that have crazing on them because that means that there's a weakness and the water can get into the porous part of the pottery. Um, But it is very beautiful and some uh, potters and artists like make sure that it is purposeful. Like Mm -hmm. they purposely fire it so that there is some crazing. All right, things that will harm your objects no matter what you do. One is... Spoiler. (laughs) Spoiler. One is humidity. Two is light. Uh, The ideal setting for most storage environments is 70 degrees Fahrenheit or 21 degrees Celsius, give or take one or two degrees, and 50% humidity, give or take 5%. However, this varies with your type of collection. Mm -hmm. Paper likes it colder than that, and textiles prefer a slightly more humid home, and ceramics and stone are comfy, basically anywhere you go. Magnetic media would prefer to be very cold. Oh, very cold. Icy cold. Um, Humidity is more important than temperature. If your temperature fluctuates, but your humidity remains relatively stable, then you're pretty good. You're not great, but it's, if that's Mm -hmm. the baseline, then you're pretty good. However, that doesn't happen naturally. It is cold and dry in the winter. It is hot and humid in the summer, especially on the East coast of the U.S. So self-contained HVAC systems are essential in your spaces. High humidity promotes mold growth, creates expansion damage to hygroscopic materials, which is just materials that absorb and release water as the humidity fluctuates. That's like wood, paper, etc. Um, and corrosion of metals as well, to name a few. Low humidity causes desiccation, drying, cracking, and embrittlement, especially in paper and textiles. So keep an eye on your humidity. If you have grandma's wedding dress, which don't worry, everybody has grandma's wedding dress, um, keep it uh don't keep it in your attic keep it in your own spaces keep it in the spaces that you live in because you like to keep it at a regular temperature and a decent humidity so it will hold up better if you keep it in your spaces instead of putting it in the basement or the attic which tends to fluctuate more so let's get into some science museums yes let's go stateside to the national air and space museum in washington dc so National Air and Space Museum is a member of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, By the way, just as an FYI, the Smithsonian Institution, also known simply as the Smithsonian, is a group of museums and research centers administered by the U.S. government. Many of them are in Washington, D.C., although there is one in Virginia and two in New York City. Um, The Air and Space Museum is a museum in Washington. Uh, In 2018, the museum saw approximately 6.2 million visitors, making it the fifth most visited museum in the world Mm -hmm. and the second most visited museum in the United States. In all the times I've been there, it has been packed wall to wall with people. You go Tuesday at 1 p.m., Saturday at 9 (laughs) a.m., Friday at 6 p.m. There's always... A ton of people. A ton of people and oh, yeah. buses and children and strollers and everybody taking photos oh, everywhere. Boy. It is it is like a little like it's a lot. overwhelming. People love space. All kinds of people love space. Um, it is also a center for research in the history and science of aviation and space flight, as well as planetary science and terrestrial geology and geophysics. Almost all space and aircraft on display are originals or the original backup craft. It operates an annex, the Stephen F. Udvar Hazy Center at Dulles International Airport, which opened in 2003, and itself encompasses 760,000 square feet or 71,000 square meters. 
The Air and Space Museum was originally called the National Air Museum when formed on August 12th, 1946 by an act of Congress. They didn't have space yet. No, they didn't have space. They didn't know anything about space. Uh, and it was signed into law by ya boy, President Harry S. Truman. The S doesn't stand for anything, but pieces in the National Air and Space Museum collection date back to 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, after which the Chinese Imperial Commission donated a group of kites to the Smithsonian after Smithsonian Secretary Spencer Fullerton Baird convinced exhibitors that shipping them home would be too costly. <laughs> <laughs> so it was basically... No, no, no. no, no. Let me hang on to these. Totally fine. So the space race in the 1950s and 60s led to the renaming of the museum to the National Air and Space Museum, and finally congressional passage of appropriations for the construction of the new Exhibition Hall, which opened on July 1st, 1976, at the height of the United States Bicentennial Festivities under the leadership of Director Michael Collins, who had flown to the moon on Apollo 11. He did not get out, however. Uh... The museum contains the Apollo 11 command module, the Friendship 7 capsule, at which was flown by John Glenn, Charles Lindbergh's Spear to St. Louis, the Bell X-1, which broke the sound barrier, Chicago, the first aircraft to fly around the world, the model of the Starship Enterprise used in Star Trek, the original <laughs> series, and the Wright Brothers airplane near the entrance. Um, just as an FYI, the entrance sculpture is called Ad Astra, to the stars, and it's by an artist named Richard Lippold. And in 2014, the museum began a television show for middle school students called STEM in 30. The show teaches uh, students science, technology, engineering, math, art, and history through artifacts at the museum and special guests from air and space history. The show is currently in its fifth season, and the museum also has regular programs called What's New in Aerospace that feature special guests. Does Steve just watch it? I don't know if he watches it, but every time he's in D.C., he has to go to the Air and Space Mm -hmm. Museum. He loves it. Next, the American Museum of Natural History, abbreviated as AMNH, and that's how I will refer to it from here on out, um, is located on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in New York City and is the largest natural history museum in the world. Uh, Located in Theodore Roosevelt Park across the street from Central Park, the museum complex comprises 28 interconnected buildings housing 45 permanent exhibition halls in addition to a planetarium and a library. 28 buildings? 28 28 buildings buildings with a B? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 28 buildings with a B as opposed to (laughs) buildings (laughs) or thousandings. Um, the museum collection contains, are you ready for this? Over 33 million specimens of plants, animals, fossils, minerals, rocks, meteorites, human remains, and human cultural artifacts, of which only a small fraction can be displayed at any given time, and occupies more than 2 million square feet or 190,000 square meters. Can you even imagine it's like being an air traffic controller like if you were the collections manager i dropped dead there i would drop dead one year oh absolutely not it's insane uh one of my former interns alice works there hi alice she doesn't listen to this podcast um but uh she when she was an intern there she helped discover a new species of frog (laughs) like they're doing this all the time they have a full-time scientific staff of 225 people and they sponsor over two, 120 special field expeditions each year and averages about 5 million visits annually. It's out of control. It's out of control. Um, so uh, you've been to the AMNH. I have not. Oh, you haven't? No. I've been to the AMNH. It is, the word I would use to describe it is dusty. And the reason being is because, <laughs> and it's understandable that it's dusty, it has 28 interconnected buildings housing 45 permanent exhibition halls and has 33 million objects in it. Who has time to clean all that? No one, not a single person and not certainly not a staff of people. So I, I give them a lot of credit for just staying open, <laughs> especially they don't also, they don't have any time to clean it. Like it's open all yeah. the time. Um, the museum is best known for its extensive and detailed dioramas, along with multiple classic halls of various subjects, including, but not limited to, taxidermied mammals and birds, forests, cultural and human origin halls, earth and planetary science, and gems and minerals. My fave. I will highlight only a few for brevity's sake. Also, going off of the 33 million specimens that um, only a small fraction can be displayed at any time, mm-hmm. any museum that you know of especially the big ones, even down to the medium-sized ones, most museums can display about, at max, 10% of their collection mm-hmm. at any given time. Usually, like, the, it averages to around 2 to 3% of their collection. Yeah. 
So what you see when you walk into a museum is the tip of basically a literal iceberg of collections objects, which is why your friendly local collections manager is very harried, we shall say. Uh, let's start with the Milstein Hall of Ocean Life. It's very ah, famous. The Milstein Hall of Ocean Life. The Milstein Life. Hall. Um, it focuses on marine biology, botany, and marine conservation. And the hall is most famous for its 94-foot, 29-meter-long blue whale model suspended from the ceiling behind its dorsal fin. The whale was redesigned dramatically in a 2003 renovation. Its flukes and fins were readjusted. A navel was added because he didn't have belly button. And it was repainted from a dull gray to various rich shades of blue. Uh, the lower and arguably more famous half of the hall consists of several large dioramas of larger marine organisms, and it is on this level that the famous squid and the whale diorama sits, depicting a hypothetical fight between the two creatures. Other notable exhibits in this hall include the Andros Coral Reef Diorama, which is the only two-level diorama in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, as mentioned previously, the hall was renovated in 2003, this time with environmentalism and conservation being the main focal points. So, the Arthur Ross Hall of Meteorites contains some of the finest specimens in the world, including Anito, a section of the 200-ton Cape York meteorite, which was found at the location of the same name in Greenland. The meteorite's great weight at 34 tons, it is the largest meteorite on display at any museum in the world, requires support by columns that extend through the floor and into the bedrock below the museum. Out of control. Oh my gosh. So um, meteorites, the RMSC has a meteorite. It's pretty big. It's probably about Mm -hmm. the size of a baseball. They are well known for being heavier than they look. They're extremely dense. Dense. Uh Um, So the fact that this meteorite is 34 tons, it must be just enormous. And this is just a chip. This is just a piece. This is just a piece. A section (laughs) of the 200 ton meteorite that was found in Greenland. It's crazy. Uh, the hall also contains extrasolar nanodiamonds, uh, which is diamonds with dimensions on the nanometer level, um, more than 5 billion years old. And these were extracted from a meteorite sample through chemical means, and they are so small that a quadrillion of these fit into a volume smaller than a cubic centimeter. My brain I know, it's doesn't so small. know what to do with that information. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Nanodiamonds. Nanodiamonds. So... You can't get a, a ring you made with nano diamonds. Sorry, too so expensive. So somebody's too small. like, "Yes, Jimmy got me this beautiful ring." Yeah, full and then you can be like, diamonds. "It's made of nano diamonds." And if they can't see it, then that's on them. You know, they're or there. I was going to say, if they're like, "My ring is the yes, these are nano diamonds that they're that they're lying at." You. Yeah, oh yeah, they're definitely lying to you. <laughs> if you can see it, then they're lying. All right, something that you would enjoy, and I also enjoy the Harry Frank Guggenheim Hall of Minerals. I love a mineral. Oh, I love a mineral. Give me a mineral. Houses hundreds of unusual geological specimens. It adjoins the Morgan Memorial Hall of Gems, showcasing many rare and valuable gemstones. On display are many renowned samples that are chosen from among the museum's more than 100,000 pieces. Included among these is the Patricia Emerald, which is a 632 carat or 126 gram 12-sided stone. It was discovered during the 1920s in a mine high in the Colombian Andes and was named for the miner owner's daughter. That's nice. The Patricia is one of the few large gem quality em- emeralds that remains uncut. Wow. Also on display is the 563 carat or 113 gram star of India, the largest and most famous star sapphire in the world. It is cut cabochon style, as I mentioned in my gem episodes. What number was that? Oh, you, I couldn't you gotta, tell you. you gotta, I know. I really should know. <clears throat> Lauren did an episode on on diamonds. Diamonds. It's called Diamonds, diamonds Are Forever. forever. Check it yeah. out. It's good. It's pretty good. Uh, so the Star of India was discovered over 300 years ago in Sri Lanka, uh, and most likely in the sands of ancient riverbeds from where star sapphires continue to be found today. It was donated to the museum by the financier J.P. Morgan, and the Star of India is polished into the shape of a cabochon, as I mentioned before, to enhance the star's beauty. Among other notable specimens on display are a 596-pound or 270-kilogram topaz, a 4.5-ton specimen of blue azurite malachite ore that was found in the Copper Queen Mine in Bisbee, Arizona. Hey! Oh, my God. stagecoach. Synergy, synergy, synergy. I love this. So... Uh, at the start of the 20th century, this happened. Um, and a rare 100-carat or 20-gram orange-colored 
Padaparashan Sapphire from Sri Lanka, considered, quote, the mother of all pads. So a Padaparashan Sapphire just means that it's like a pinky orange sapphire that's found in Sri Lanka, specifically. Uh, The collection also includes the Midnight Star, a 116.75 carat deep purplish red star ruby, which was from Sri Lanka and was also donated by J.P. Morgan to the AMNH, like the Star of India in the same year, 1901. So he just had these two huge stones Uh, and he was like, ugh, I'm sick of looking at them. Send them home. Um, The museum also has a huge and extensive collection of fossils. In fact, the great weight of the fossil bones led designers to add special steel reinforcements to the building's framework, as it now houses the largest collection of fossil mammals and dinosaurs in the world. One more thing, the Hayden Planetarium connected to the museum is now part of the Rose Center for Earth and Space, housed in a glass cube containing the spherical space theater. Uh, As most people... spherical theater in a glass cube? Yes, Ooh, yeah, that sounds pretty. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Famously, Neil deGrasse Tyson is the director of that planetarium. Okay. Um, And now we're going to get into some smaller but very important science museums that should be mentioned. The Science Museum, that's that's just what it's called. What it's called? Um, It is a major museum on Exhibition Road in South Kensington, London. It was founded in 1857 and is today one of the city's major tourist attractions, attracting 3.3 million visitors annually. The museum was founded in 1857 under Bennett Woodcroft from the collection of the Royal Society of Arts and Surplus Items from the Great Exhibition as part of the South Kensington Museum. In 1885, the science collections were renamed the Science Museum, and in 1893, a separate director was appointed. The art collections were renamed the Art Museum, which eventually became the Victorian Albert Museum. Okay. So the Victorian Albert is an extension, is part of the okay. Science Museum at one point. Interesting. Um, the Science Museum now holds a collection of over 300,000 items, including such famous items as Stevenson's Rocket, Puffing Billy, which is the oldest surviving steam locomotive, the first jet engine, the Apollo 10 command module, a reconstruction of Rosalind fucking Franklin's model of DNA, and the Wikipedia page said Francis Crick and James Watson's model of DNA, and I scratched scratched it it out, and I wrote in all caps... Rosalind Franklin. And you can check out our episode, Rosalind Effing Franklin and the Structure of DNA. It's very good. Uh, Some of the earliest remaining steam engines, including an example of a Newcomen steam engine, the world's first steam engine, a working example of Charles Babbage's difference engine, Mm. the first prototype of the 10,000-year clock of the long now. I do not know what that is. And you know what? I purposely didn't because the clock of the long now is so... That's... That's tight. Um, And documentation of the first typewriter. It also contains hundreds of interactive exhibits. And the museum houses some of the many objects collected by Henry Welcome around a medical theme. The fourth floor exhibit is called The Glimpses of Medical History with Reconstructions and Dioramas of the History of Practice Medicine. And the fifth floor gallery is called Science and the Art of Medicine with exhibits of medical instruments and practices from the ancient days and from many countries. The collection as a whole is strong in clinical medicine, biosciences, and public health. So... Next, we have, oh boy, the Cité des Sciences et de l'Industrie, the City of Science and Industry, abbreviated La CSI or simply CSI. It is the biggest science museum in Europe. Your mouth was too big. I know, my mouth was too big. Okay, I'll try again. I'll try again. Uh, It's the biggest science museum in Europe. It is located in Parc de la Villette in Paris, France, and is one of the three dozen French cultural centers of science, technology, and industry. It is also known as the CCSTI. Um, It promotes science and science culture. About 5 million people visit the Cité each year. Cité? Cité. Uh, Attractions include a planetarium, a submarine, the Argonaut, an IMAX theater known as La Giode, And special areas for children and teenagers, the Cité is classified as a public establishment of an industrial and commercial character, an establishment specializing in the fostering of scientific and technical culture. Created on the initiative of President Giscard d'Estaing, the goal of the Cité is to spread scientific and technical knowledge among the public, particularly for youth, and to promote public interest in science research and industry. The most notable feature of the bioclimatic facade featuring the park are the laser three greenhouse spaces each 32 meters 104 feet high 32 meters wide and eight meters 26 feet deep the facades of laser were the first structural glass walls to be constructed without framing or support fins oh, interesting. yeah it's very cool 
We'll get away from Paris. <laughs> Shanghai Science and Technology Museum is a large museum in Pudong, Shanghai. It is one of China's most visited museums with 3.5 million visitors on average annually. And the museum was planned for a key project for popularizing science in the Yangtze Delta region. It opened after an extensive building project in December of 2001. So it's a relatively recent museum. At the time of the opening, it was the first science and technology museum authenticated to meet ISO 9000-14000 quality and environmental standards. Say no more. It's very green. Uh, between its opening in 2010, it attracted 19.5 million visitors. Wow. Uh, the museum is dedicated to the popularization of science with an intended theme of the harmony of nature, mankind, and technology. It has 14 main permanent exhibitions and four science-themed cinemas. The exhibitions include Spectrum of Life, a natural exhibit which imitates the scenery of the Yunnan province and displays the diversity of its creatures, Children's Rainbow Land, Light of Wisdom. Children's Rainbow yeah. Land. Uh, Light of Wisdom, I think, is about um, like the history of science in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, World of Robots, where you can see all sorts of cool robots. And spiders. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Chinese Ancient Science and Technology Gallery showcases ancient Chinese inventions and works. The Explorers Gallery features Chinese and foreign explorers. And the Academicians Gallery features contemporary scientists from China, particularly Shanghai. There was previously also an audiovisual discovery paradise, a small-scale hydroelectric power station, a 700-square-meter or 7,500-square-foot rainforest, an aviary, an aquarium, and an earthquake center, including a motive platform with video allowing visitors to experience simulated tremors. It was, like, super intense. Uh, The exhibitions were intended to represent cutting-edge scientific development using innovative and unique exhibition methods, but many have not been updated since their installation. Uh. Apparently, this is common in China, where museums often subcontract all their exhibits designed to private firms without any long-term arrangement for updates. that's too bad. Yeah. So next is the Deutsches Museum, or the German Museum, officially uh, Deutsches Museum von Meisterwerken der Naturwissenschaft und Technik. Your Dutch is so much better than your French. I know. Isn't it amazing? I don't know what it is. Um, it's also known as the German Museum of Masterpieces of Science and Technology in Munich, Germany. It is the world's largest museum of science and technology. Okay. With about 28,000 exhibited objects from 50 fields of science and technology. I could not find how many objects they have in their collection. Wow. It receives about 1.5 million visitors per year. Uh, the museum was founded on June 28, 1903 at a meeting of the Association of German Engineers as an initiative of Oskar von Miller, a German engineer. It is the largest museum in Munich, and for a period of time, the museum was used to host pop and rock concerts, including The Who, Jimi Hendrix, and Elton John. Uh, this is interesting. The main site of the Deutsches Museum is a small island in the Isar River, which had been used for rafting wood since the Middle Ages. The island did not have any buildings before 1772 because it was regularly flooded prior to the building of the Silvensteinspeike, which is the Silvenstein Dam. In 1903, the city council announced that they would donate the island for the newly built Deutsches Museum, and the island formerly known as Kohlensinsel, which is Coal Island, was then renamed Museumsinsel, which is Museum Island. Uh, Before and during World War II, the museum was put on a shoestring budget by the Nazi party, Uh and many exhibits were allowed to get out of date with a few exceptions, such as the new automobile room dedicated on May 7th, 1937. Hitler really loved his cars. Cars. By the end of 1944, the museum was badly damaged by air bombings, with 80% of the buildings and 20% of the exhibits damaged or destroyed. As Allied troops marched into Munich in April 1945, museum director Karl Bossler barely managed to keep the last standing bridge to Museum Island from being blown up by retreating German troops. So following the war, the museum had to be closed for repairs and temporary tenants, such as the College of Technology and the post office, used museum space as their own buildings were being reconstructed. The museum was also home to the Central Committee of the Liberated Jews, representing Jewish displaced persons in the American zone of Germany after the war. In addition to the main site on the Museum Sinsel, the museum has two branches in or near Munich and one in Bonn. And that is a non-comprehensive but... I thought interesting. Yes, some highlights. Highlights of international science and technology museums. Thank you, Lauren. Oh, you're so welcome. I think another highlight would be the Field Museum in Chicago. Oh, yeah, the Field Museum is fantastic. Where we will be. Oh, we're going there. I didn't want to do another Chicago museum because I didn't want anyone to think that we were, you know. Well, we're learning. Oh, we're learning. We're going to be in Chicago for Geek Bowl, y'all. Yeah. I'll do the Field Museum when I do History Museums, too. 
there's a lot of like yeah. overlap. Yeah, you know? sure. So my quiz today is called, did you hear me? I said zoos are museums. A quiz on animals you would see at the zoo. Question number one. There are two geographically distinct types of elephants that are recognized. Can you name them both? Question number two. You won't see this programming language at the zoo, at least not in a cage, but the real story is that it was named for a bunch of silly people, not an animal. What programming language am I talking about? Question number three. Name this zoo animal. These precious babies have the thickest fur of any mammal in the animal kingdom. They float together by wrapping themselves and each other in seaweed, and that's called rafts, and a group of them is called a romp. Question number four. True or false, grizzly-polar bear hybrids exist in the wild, and they're called growler bears. Question number five. There are four countries with lions on their flags. Can you name two of them? Question number six. I guess they do look alike if you think about it. Hippos are related to what friendly marine animal? Question number seven. Sea lions are clever creatures, and they'd probably be great at dodgeball, you know, wearing those cute little vests and gym class. But I digress. What group of sea animals does the sea lion belong to that include elephant seals, walruses, and fur seals? Question number eight. Go Bills. The city of Buffalo has a long and storied history with sports and also its official animal mascot. But the image you see on the Bills helmets and around the city itself is not of a true buffalo, but what distantly related even-toed ungulate? Question number nine. What bird encompasses all of these species names? Egyptian. Black. Turkey. King. And lappet-faced. And finally, question number 10. In 2015, the rapper Designer, with two eyes, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with his debut single named after what lazy and well-loved zoo animal? I'll give you a minute to think, and we'll be right back with your answers. I'm not going to do great. What? Oh, yeah. Do fine. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Question number one. There are two geographically distinct types of elephants that are recognized. Can you name them both? <laughs> My brain is a little broken today. Oh, no. Um, Asian and African? Yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. What are you talking about? You're doing All great. Right. Um, this is, uh, usually they say the the ears, you know, show the mm-hmm. shape of Africa, like the African elephant, the shape of the ear looks like the continent of Africa. Sure. Um, but also Asian elephants have one small finger like projection at the end of the trunk. Mm. And African elephants have two fingers. Interesting. Um, herds are led by a matriarch, usually the oldest female, and are made up of daughters, sisters, and their offspring. So it's all ladies. Uh, male elephants stay with the herd through adolescence and then move away as they grow older. And male elephants often stay independent, but sometimes band together in bachelor pods. Uh, African savanna elephants can live in very large herds consisting of anywhere from 20 to 70 individuals, while the African forest elephants like the Asian elephants generally live in smaller herds. So it's like a fraternity of bro elephants. Yeah, just like a bunch of guys who are like, man, I'm having a really hard time finding food. Can I hang with you, man? <laughs> I'm having a really hard time finding some females. Maybe if we banded together, we could really like, can you be my wingman? (sighs) 
elephants. They're just like people. Um, question number two, you won't see this programming language at the zoo, at least not in a cage. But the real story is that it was named for a bunch of silly people, not an animal. What programming language am I talking about? Thank goodness. This last second clicked for me. Good. I'm going with Python. It is Python. Uh, the <laughs> Wikipedia article for the Python programming language. Uh-huh. This is a direct quote. Python's name is derived from the British comedy group Monty Python, whom Python creator Guido Van Rossum enjoyed while developing the language. It's like, he, okay. He rather enjoyed, he enjoyed that it. program. That programming language. <laughs> All right. Question number three. Name the zoo animal. These precious babies have the thickest fur of any mammal in the animal kingdom, and they float together by wrapping themselves and each other in seaweed called rafts. And a group of them is called a rump. I was thinking otter. Yes, it's oh. otters. Uh, otters, uh, 90% of all sea otters live off the coast of Alaska. Uh, they carry rocks and store food in the loose skin under their armpits. Uh, and, and an otter pup's fur is too dense for it to swim underwater. So their mother leaves them floating just like oh. she just like lets them float while she searches for food. Oh. Oh. They're so cute. When we were in um, L.A. for Je- Josh's Jeopardy taping, which, by the way, everybody watched Jeopardy on February 12th. February 12th. Um, we went to the Aquarium in the Pacific, and they had a really cool otter exhibit. And like we listened to the trainers talk to us and stuff like that. And so the otters float on their back when they're eating, and they use their chest as like... A plate. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're very cute. They're so cute. Okay. Question number four. True or false? Grizzly polar bear hybrids exist in the wild, and they're called growler bears. Um, so I'm thinking of where they live. So I'm yeah. thinking like Alaska has grizzlies. I'm yeah. thinking Canada has grizzlies. Sure. Polar bears would be like an Arctic thing. Sure. Because polar bears and penguins do not live in the same place. No. Um, so in theory, I could see that they could possibly hang out together. Okay. Uh, I'm going to need an answer. I'm going to say, I'm going to say false. No, it's true. Ah! <laughs> They're also called pizzly bears. No, that's I'm not a kidding you. name. Um, the hybrid physically resembles an intermediate between the two species. They look like halvesies between the two of them. Uh, but as wild hybrids, they are usually birthed from polar bear mothers and they are raised and behave like polar bears. <laughs> it's wild. Also, polar bears are classified as a marine animal. Really? Yeah. They can swim for like literally days. Yeah. It's wow. crazy. They're very interesting. Uh, question number five. There are four countries with lions on their flags. Can you name two of them? Okay. Sri Lanka. Yes. <laughs> Mexico. No. Ah. Okay. So the four countries are Sri Lanka, Fiji, Spain, and Montenegro. Spain. Yeah. Spain does have one. Um, just a little thing about lions and her- heraldry. Uh, lions and heraldry go back to at least the Viking era. And there are at least eight different attitudes or positions that a lion is depicted in. They are called rampant, passant, statante, saliante, sejante, sejante erect, couchante, and dormant. Dormant is sleeping. Yes. Couchante is laying down. Yes. So basically rampant is them like you see the lion like up on its hind mm-hmm. legs like dancing it looks like. Passant. About to rampage. Yes. Mm-hmm. About to rampage. Passant is walking. Mm-hmm. Uh, statante is just standing with all four paws in the ground. Uh, saliant is leaping, okay. which is rare to see. Ah. Uh, sejant is sitting like a dog would sit. Uh, sejant erect is he's got his head up. Mm-hmm. Um, couchant, which is laying down with his head up like a dog would like lay down. And then dormant is asleep with his head all the way down. Um, yeah. So you see these in all sorts of heralds and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And, uh, lions in heraldry are sometimes called leopards. Mm-hmm. And then it also depends on like what side of the flag yep. or the herald it's on and all this stuff. I yeah. mean, there's like so much of this. Right or left. Yeah. Right or left. Like which way he's like growling toward where his eyes are, like all this weird stuff. 
Okay, question number six. I guess they do look alike if you think about it. Hippos are related to what friendly marine animal? Hmm. How about a manatee? No, they are related to dolphins. What? Yeah. <laughs> um, dolphins or cetaceans, which are whales, porpoises, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hippo is among the most dangerous animal in the world as it yeah. is highly aggressive and unpredictable. Their skin secretes a natural sunsc- sunscreen substance, which is red. The secretions are sometimes referred to as blood sweat, but is Gross. either blood nor sweat. The secretion is initially colorless and turns red-orange within minutes, eventually becoming brown. The pigments are highly acidic compounds, and they inhibit the growth of disease-causing bacteria, and their light absorption peaks in the ultraviolet range, creating a sunscreen effect. So basically, they're super gross. <laughs> they're they're very big. Oh, they're enormous. And they can run. Yeah. Like, ooh, those bitches can run. It's crazy. And their bites, ooh, so dangerous. So stay away from hippos, you guys. Very dangerous. Pro tip from us in Western New York. Yeah. To you. Get away from them. Uh, question number seven. Sea lions are clever creatures and they'll probably be great at dodgeball. You know, wearing those cute little vests in gym class. But I digress. What group of sea animals does the sea lion belong to that includes elephant seals, walruses, and fur seals? I don't have the slightest idea. They're called pinnipeds i was trying to go with pinny um which may not have been that i have heard of that word pinniped yeah yeah um sea lions are extremely cute james takes care of the sea lions at the seneca park zoo uh and unlike true seals they have external ears and can lift their bodies up off the sand and walk on all fours and even (laughs) run if necessary meanwhile true seals can only kind of like like roll basically They can just kind of like hop on their bellies. Okay. Question number eight. Go Bills. The city of Buffalo has a long and storied history with sports and also its official animal mascot. But the image you see on the Bills helmets and around the city itself is not of a true buffalo, but what distantly related even toed ungulate? I was going to say a bison. It is a bison. Okay. Uh, bison Ooh. are commonly referred to as buffalo in the U.S. and Canada. It's perfectly fine. But they are actually distantly related to buffalo. And also the AAA minor league baseball team in Buffalo is called the Bisons. Mm-hmm. Bisons are cuter anyway, I think. Um, in my favorite piece of trivia for any movie I have ever read in my whole life is that in Dances with Wolves, there's a buffalo hunt. Mm-hmm. And apparently while they were filming the buffalo hunt, they used domesticated bison. And at one point you see a baby buffalo like running away, a little baby bison like tearing ass away. And apparently they got that baby buffalo to run away from its mother as though its mother was like dying or whatever by tempting him with his favorite treat, which was Oreo cookies. (laughs) (laughs) And then he ran away from his mom. they got the shot is it the cutest thing you've ever heard um also while doing this question i realized i might do an episode on buffalo new york yeah all of this i know where where have we been (laughs) we're like oh man what am i gonna do next week i have no idea i haven't thought of anything there are so many things that are like distinctly related to us i'll do a whole episode on buffalo you guys get ready for it there's a lot the accent will oh yeah it's gonna be all long out I'm going to say, holy mackerel. Okay. And check my calendar. <laughs> check my calendar. Ugh, go Bills. Um, question number nine. What bird encompasses all of these species names? Egyptian, black, turkey, king, and lapid-faced. How do, can you spell that last thing for me? L-A-P-P-E-T, faced. <laughs> Uh, I'll just say vulture. It is a vulture. Um, the okay. only reason I got there was turkey. Yeah. I mean, that's why I included it. <laughs> and king. King vulture is apparently something that people know. Uh, I didn't. A group of vultures is called a kettle, a committee, or a wake. The term kettle refers to vultures in flight, while a committee refers to vultures resting on the ground or in trees. And a wake is reserved for a group of vultures that are feeding. Yeah. All right, why? why do they need so many different terms? I don't know. So that you know what's going on. Like, look, there's a wake of turkeys. And then you know, like, oh, yeah, they're eating some. Uh, 
Question number 10. In 2015, the rapper Designer, with two eyes, reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 with his debut single named after what lazy and well-loved zoo animal? Could it be a sloth? No, it's a panda. And the reason, the, the hook was written about the BMW X6, specifically one in white, which he likens to the appearance of a panda. It's a good song. I really liked it when it came out. It was on my Spotify. And a lot of people were like, designer, because there's two eyes in the middle of designer. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't, I'm unfamiliar with designer. Designer. All thank right. you, Lauren. Oh, thank you, Julia. I'm gonna, I gotta brush up on animals, I guess, before we go to the, before misinformation oh, goes to the zoo. Yeah, because we're gonna be like, what's that thing? <laughs> Ooh, what's it doing? <laughs> it might make it better, actually. <laughs> then he could be like, all right, you guys, all stop right. yelling at the leopards. That's enough. Are there leopards there? Um, I know there's a tiger. <gasps> yeah. Wow. He takes care of the lions, the sea lions, and he, at one point, took care of the elephants, elephants? but I don't know if yeah. he does it anymore. Um, but yeah, he posts pictures all the time of the lions. Yeah. And he takes beautiful photos of these lions. There are two females and one male lion, and they're beautiful. It's really cool. That's great. So Thanks, Lauren. Oh, you're welcome. So as you all know, I know you've been waiting for it. It's time for our... Uh, for our ongoing series of yes. uh, listener submitted trivia, it's Germs Corner. This week's Germs Corner um, is brought to you by Germ. Brought to you by Germ. Wikipedia, wiki of the Wikipedia, is a Hawaiian word in general used in America. The only other word I could think of in similar use would be Akamai, as in the computer com- company Akamai Technologies, means smart, and punani, but that's not going to come up in trivia. <laughs> These are all like direct quotes from Germ. Thank you, Thanks, germ. germ. Thanks, Germ. Mahalo. Ma- Mahalo, Germ. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. Thank-, and thank you so much to all the people that have done it. It's- yeah. You know, every now and then we're having a bad day. Yeah. We just go on iTunes and see what nice things <laughs> people have said about we really us. really just, you know, need that. Yeah. Sometimes need that affirmation. Absolutely. You guys have been very, very kind, kind to us and uh, we totally appreciate it. So uh, thanks so much for participating in my second installment of my museum uh, course. Yeah. You get three more credits. Yeah. Today. You get three more credits and that'll be $350. So we do have a PayPal account link in our Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so I will be expecting your tuition soon. Before you post grades. Before I post grades. Yes. Uh, so thanks so much for listening, guys. <laughs> we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.